I want to talk to you tonight about the greatest day of your life. I'm not talking about your wedding day or graduation or your retirement date or the day you make your last mortgage payment or when your probation ends or the day the Falcons finally win a Super Bowl. No, no, no. I'm talking the day that Jesus snatches away his church. For if you follow Jesus, that will be your very best day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that on that day, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the spirits of those who died in Christ will come too. Their bodies will be resurrected and reunited with their spirits. Then we who are alive at the time will be transformed into our glorified state. We'll be beamed up, snatched away into the clouds. Jesus will snatch us to heaven to live forever with him. It will be a really good day. This is the day that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. Notice, saving faith is a standing faith. You know, it's not enough for us to simply believe. We have to hold fast to our faith. Paul is crystal clear about this. He says, you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. This theme appears over and over again in the New Testament. We're not saved by once having faith, but by continuing in that faith. Reminds me of a Monday night football game I saw back in 2008 when Eagles receiver Deshaun Jackson slipped behind the defense to catch a 61-yard 60 yard bomb from Donovan McNabb. He grabs the ball and he glides into the end zone and you think, touchdown, or was it? There was just one problem. Look at it again. Jackson accidentally dropped the ball on the one-yard line. The Cowboys recovered and negated the score. It just goes to prove you've got to finish the drill. You can't score if you drop the ball. And likewise, with our salvation, you've got to cross the goal line of life with your faith intact. It's not enough to have had faith at some time in the past. You have to finish with your faith. People ask me, Pastor Sandy, do you believe in eternal security? And my answer is always, absolutely. As long as you're trusting in Jesus, you are eternally secure. Salvation has nothing to do with my works. What I do or what I don't do, it's all faith. But a legitimate faith perseveres and endures. Paul says, hold fast that word which I preach to you. In other words, don't fumble away your faith. Well, verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Notice the gospel Paul preached wasn't his own invention. He delivered what he had received. He was just the messenger. And here he lays out for us the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he says. According to the scriptures. 
We can go to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Leviticus 16, and the Day of Atonement. All these scriptures describe in detail the death of our Savior. In fact, the entire Levitical system of sacrifice foreshadowed the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. The gospel continues, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Several Old Testament passages predicted Jesus' resurrection. One of the clearest was Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Messiah is saying that he won't be left to rot, but he will be raised from the dead. And here Paul says that the Old Testament scriptures predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. Yet where is that detail found? you got to delve a little bit deeper. It's mentioned metaphorically three times. First, in Jonah. You remember as a type of Christ, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Three days, three nights. Second is the Feast of First Fruits. This feast occurred three days after Passover, and likewise, Jesus was the first person resurrected, or the first fruits of the resurrection. It occurred three days after his death on Passover. And then finally, you see the three days in the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Three days elapsed from the time Abraham committed his son to be sacrificed until God delivered Isaac on top of Mount Moriah. Paul points out that the Old Testament scripture predicted Messiah would be raised from the dead on the third day. And what scripture predicted, history affirmed. For in the next few verses, Paul mentions numerous eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, for some have fallen asleep. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians around 57 AD. That means it had been 25 years since Jesus' resurrection. Paul is noting that many of the eyewitnesses are still alive and kicking, he says. Hey, if the Corinthians doubted the gospel, all they had to do was interview the eyewitnesses. For God based his good news, the good news that saves, on historically verifiable events. See, God stepped into the real world. Our Savior Jesus occupies a point on the timeline. Other religions are tied to metaphysical speculation or to vague promises. But Christianity is built on objective, verifiable evidence. Its enemies could have shot down Christianity before it ever got off the ground. All they had to do was present the body of Jesus. They didn't because he was alive. Verse 7, for after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Years after he ascended to heaven, the risen Christ made a special post-resurrection appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus. I believe that Paul was one of the 12 apostles. He just joined the band a little late. Did you know Pete Best was the Beatles' original drummer? 
Did you know that? But when you think of the Beatles, it isn't George, Paul, John, and Pete. No. It's Ringo. Everybody considers Ringo Starr the fourth Beatle. And likewise, in my mind, Paul was one of the 12 apostles. He just got to the party a little late. As he put it, he was born out of due time. And Paul talks about his apostleship. He says, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was a persecutor turned preacher and apostle. God made a marvelous transformation in his life. You know, it's interesting. He wrote 1 Corinthians in 57 AD, yet he called himself here the least of the apostles. He'll write Ephesians three years later in 60 AD, and there he calls himself the least of all the saints. And when he writes 1 Timothy, five years after Ephesians in 65 AD, Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. He goes from the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints to the chief of sinners. It seems that the longer Paul walked with Jesus, the lower the estimation he had of himself. And this should be true of us. The more we hang out with God, the more we behold his glory, the smaller we should become in our own eyes. Verse 10 is a favorite verse of mine. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Paul says, I'm a poster child for God's grace. He went from Christianity's chief opponent to its main proponent. Paul received God's offer of free forgiveness, of free favor, of free blessing. And then he spent the rest of his life finding ways to say thanks to God. That's how you respond to grace. You know, people today take pride in being a self-made man. Paul rejoiced in that he was a grace-made man. All that Paul accomplished, he chalked up to the grace that was working in him. You know, I like to tell people, I'm hanging on a slender thread called grace, but the longer I do, I learn it's more strong than a thousand ropes. And Paul would agree. Paul sums up his thoughts on the gospel, verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Now, you remember 1 Corinthians is written to correct problems in the church. And here they had a problem in their understanding of the resurrection. Greek philosophy and Jewish theology were at odds on this subject of resurrection. The Greeks taught that the body was the cage of the soul. That man's ultimate triumph is to free himself from this fleshly prison that we inhabit. That the body is, an, is only a temporary housing. Whereas the Jews taught the resurrection of the body. That man's ultimate triumph was not freedom from the body, but the transformation of the body. Our victory isn't merely escaping the flesh, but there needs to be a reshaping of the flesh. 
The Jews believed that God's goal was the elimination of sin's effects. God would one day raise our bodies uncorrupted by sin. Well, the Corinthians were Christians. They believed in Jesus' resurrection. But apparently, some of them were holding on to their Greek concept of the afterlife. And here Paul sets them straight. He tells them that they're contradicting themselves. If you don't believe in the resurrection of everyone's body, then how can you embrace the resurrection of the body of Jesus? You can't have one without the other. He starts his rationale in verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. He says, without Jesus' resurrection, Christianity crumbles like a house of cards. If Jesus is just another dead guy, like Muhammad, like Buddha, like Moses, then he's not the Lord of life. Jesus loses his uniqueness if the resurrection isn't true. He's not who he said he was. He says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Paul states the obvious here. If you deny the bodily resurrection of the dead, then the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus is a lie, and all of its preachers are liars. Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Jesus had a human body. So to deny the resurrection of human bodies in general is to deny his resurrection. This is Paul's rationale. If Jesus didn't overcome death, then we're all still under the wages of sin and lost forever. Paul would tell us we might as well trash our Bibles, sell off the church building, go out and get drunk. If life stops at the grave, then it's eat, drink, and be merry. And neither would there be any hope for our loved ones who have already died if there is no resurrection, Paul adds. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you can forget about seeing your believing mom or dad or your spouse or your friend. Paul sums it up. For in this life, only we have hope in Christ. We are all men, the most pitiable. In other words, if there's nothing more to life here and now, then the sacrifices necessary to live the Christian life aren't worth making. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then the last man with the most toys really does win. But that's not what life is about. For verse 20 tells us, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact is, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has conquered the last enemy. Today he dwells in the glory of his Father, and his resurrection has paved the way for you and I to follow. The person who presents their body to Jesus, a living sacrifice, will one day see Jesus transform that body into his glory. We'll be resurrected like Jesus. This is why Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. The Old Testament had a feast known as First Fruits. It occurred three days after the Passover. The priest would bring a bundle of wheat to the Lord. It was the first of the spring crop, but it represented the entire harvest. 
And that's the first fruits he would present. He would hold up the sheath to the Lord. When the priest waved it before God, he was saying that there was more to come. And all of it belonged to God. And this is why Paul compares Jesus to the first fruits of the harvest. Jesus was the first of many followers whose bodies will one day rise from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, there are now more to come, namely you and me. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ's at his coming. People who are only born once share the destiny of their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam. They die and they rot in the grave. But people who are born twice, who experience both a physical birth and later a spiritual birth in Christ, are destined to be like Jesus. Their bodies will live forever. But there's an order to the resurrection. Jesus was resurrected at his first coming in 32 AD. Our bodies will experience the same metamorphosis when he returns yet future. Jesus is resurrected first. He's the first fruits, then we follow in the future. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that the church will be resurrected at the rapture. And this mass exodus will be followed by seven years of what the Bible calls great tribulation. During this time, God's wrath will be poured out on this wicked world. The climactic period of judgment ends when Jesus triumphs over all his enemies, establishes his kingdom on the earth, and puts his enemies under his feet. At his first coming, salvation was on Jesus' mind. At his second coming, domination will be on his mind. Gentle Jesus will crush his enemies. He'll take the kings by the scruff of the neck and force them to submit. In John 5, verse 28 and 29, Jesus told us that there are actually two resurrections. He says, the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear, that is, the Father's voice, and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The resurrection of life actually occurs at the rapture, whereas Revelation 20 verse 12 tells us that after the rapture and Jesus reigns over the earth a thousand years, Hades will be emptied out. And at that time, the lost will also be resurrected, but not to life. Their bodies will be tossed into the lake of fire. And then verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Revelation 20 verse 14 adds, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Our arch enemy death will be no longer the threat that it is today to those who believe. It will be cast into the lake of fire. Death will be no more. Well, next Paul quotes Psalm 8 verse 6. For Jesus has put all things under his feet. And, of course, that includes death. 
Realize, this is the ultimate goal in God's eternal plan of the ages. He intends for the whole universe to end up in submission to King Jesus under his feet. In verse 27, Paul points out a technicality that ends up teaching us something about the unity of God's nature. He says, but when he says, in other words, who is the author of Psalm 8? In a sense, it was David, but in a deeper sense, it was the Spirit of God. Thus, when God says, all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. God the Father exalts the Son, then in the end, the Son of God will submit to the Father. The Godhead is forever an ordered equality. All three members of the Godhead are equal, but they're distinct in their roles. Now, verse 29 is at first a puzzling passage. Paul writes, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now remember, Paul is trying to prove the resurrection of the dead. And here he brings up a pagan practice to make his point. The cults of Paul's day practice what we would call proxy baptisms. Today's cults do the same. Mormons get baptized for deceased people who weren't Mormons. It gives the dead a second chance to become a Mormon as if that did you any good in the first place. It's a false religion. Proxy baptism is just superstition. And nowhere does the New Testament teach that it conveys any kind of merit or any kind of second opportunity, especially not here. For notice how Paul words his argument. He says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? And why then are they baptized for the dead? Notice Paul doesn't say us. He specifies they, they meaning the pagan neighbors of the Corinthians. Proxy baptism was never a Christian practice. It was an aberrant ritual performed by the pagans in the city of Corinth. But the practice did indicate their belief in a physical resurrection. And so he's asking, why are you going to the trouble of physically being baptized for a friend if you don't believe that their physical body is one day going to be resurrected? Paul's point to the Corinthian church is clear. If even the heretical heathen around you see the truth of the resurrection, why can't you as a spirit-filled believer? Well, verse 30. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul was persecuted daily because of his belief in a physical resurrection. If it wasn't true, why accept the risk of preaching it? That's what he's saying. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus. And he says that he fought with beasts for Christ's sake. He's probably referring to evil men. But it's possible that he had been thrown to the lions a time or two. That was a practice that the Romans did, you know, to persecute um, people that they targeted. 
there is no resurrection, then why is Paul wasting his life suffering for a false doctrine? That's what he's saying. He says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Again, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's drop by the liquor store tonight and down a bottle of Jack Daniels. If all we have to look forward to is rotting in the grave, then just live for today. Grab for all the gusto. Verse 33, he says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. See, the reason some of the Corinthians had embraced false doctrine is because they were hanging out with people who believed in heresy. It goes to prove, hang with the wrong crowd and you get hung. Evil rubs off. That's why you need to choose your friends wisely. He goes on, he says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You've heard the old saying, ignorance is bliss. Don't believe it. What you don't know can hurt you. Really can. Take, for example, a man from Bristol, England. He dove head first off the local pier. He plunged 25 feet into the ocean. But what he didn't realize was that the tide had gone out and the water at the time was only 18 inches deep. What he didn't know ended up having a tremendous impact on his life. And Paul is saying that we need to wake up to what we believe. We need to give these things serious thought. Some of us are ignorant of the word of God that sits on our lap. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Some of the Corinthians were asking about the mechanics of the resurrection. How is this going to happen? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And Paul's explanation draws from nature. In fact, he uses agriculture to teach us a little theology. And here's the first principle that he draws. Resurrection requires a death. Before a fruit sprouts, a seed has to be buried and die. Death always precedes resurrection. He says, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. A new body comes only after the old body dies. A seed nestles into the ground, and it dies so that from it, God can resurrect a grain or a fruit. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. God created different types of bodies to survive in different environments. A bird's body needs to be aerodynamic. A fish's body needs to be aquadynamic. A body that's suitable for one ecosystem may not adapt to another environment. The creator fits all of life with a body that's suitable for its surroundings. And the same is true spiritually. He says, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. As there are different bodies on earth, there are also earthy bodies and heavenly bodies. He says, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. 
Astronomers tell us this, that each star has its own mass and luminosity and density. It has its own characteristics. And so also is the resurrection of the dead. For the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now remember, nothing rises to resurrection life until it first dies. Life springs from death. Bodies only change in character after they die. It's upon death that a body goes from corruptible to incorruptible, from shameful to glorious, from weak to strong, from natural to spiritual. I'll never forget the young man who gave his life to Jesus on his deathbed. This fellow was in terrible pain. He was dying of cancer. In fact, I baptized him in his bed. And I remember asking Mike, is there anything I can do for you? (laughs) He said rather matter-of-factly, no, unless you can get me another body. Well, guess what? I can't, but that is exactly what Jesus can do. One day, my friend Mike is going to get a new body. It'll be a pain-free, cancer-free body. In fact, everyone who trusts in Jesus will one day receive a brand new body. Verse 44. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man, that is Adam, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man, which is Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. Adam was earthly. He had an earthly body. Jesus is heavenly. Adam came first, then came Jesus, and this is God's order. Our current bod is from the sod, but our future bod comes from God. You know, I have a definite principle that I adhere to when it comes to rearing kids. Did it with all four of my kids. If you have kids approaching the teenage years, I hardly recommend this. But every teenager needs to drive a beater. That is a vehicle with some rust on it. Before they graduate to a nice ride. Trust me, they will appreciate the newer model car after they drive the jalopy. They will. And you know, the same is true with us. Right now, we're in a jalopy of a body, are we not? But Jesus is going to put us in a brand new model, fresh off the lot body. That's what we're going to get. One day, we'll get new bodies with no dents, no malfunctions. We'll even have a new car smell, I'm sure. You know, during the weeks after his resurrection, Jesus displayed the capabilities of our future bodies. He sort of took his resurrection body on a 40-day test drive. The risen Christ was unhindered by time and space, remember. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then suddenly he vanished while they were having lunch. He appeared right back in Jerusalem. When he visited his disciples behind closed doors, he appeared in their midst. 
Jesus' body came right through the walls. And yet when he held out his hands for Thomas to touch, it was obvious that Jesus was still flesh and bone. Jesus even ate fish and bread with his disciples for breakfast. And this is the body that one day we're going to possess. Jesus was just the first fruits. We're those that are going to follow. We're the rest of the harvest. Here's how I imagine I imagine our glorified bodies. Lock your keys in the car. No biggie. You'll just be able to transport yourself right through the door panel. But who will need a car? Want to take a jaunt around the world? You'll be able to travel at the speed of desire. We're talking Star Trek stuff in real life. We'll all receive a body that is literally out of this world. For verse 48 tells us, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. On earth we get earthly bodies. In heaven we get upgraded to heavenly bodies. In a sense we're going to go from dust to stardust. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And of course our heavenly man is our Lord Jesus. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. This is why we need a new body, because corruption cannot inherit incorruption. You know, when the first men walked on the moon, NASA knew that a human body could never survive on the lunar surface. Our bodies, our earthly bodies, weren't fit for lunar life. That's why NASA designed a life support suit perfectly fitted for the moon. And likewise, these mortal bodies aren't suited to survive the awesome physical presence of God. If we entered pure holiness wearing flesh and blood, flesh and bone, we'd fry like eggs on the hood of a race car. We couldn't survive. When we enter God's throne room, we'll have to shed these earth suits and we'll have to suit up in a heavenly body, fit for that environment. But how is this going to happen? Well, verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We used to have a sign in our nursery, church nursery back there that quoted verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Seemed appropriate in the nursery. But a metamorphosis is coming. At the rapture, we'll not only be snatched to heaven, but we'll get new bodies in the process. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, you would think a transformation from earthly to heavenly would take hours, if not days or months. But Jesus plans to give me a new body, not in a blink, but in a twinkle. And a twinkle of an eye is even faster than a blink. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Kathy likes to plant bulbs in the springtime. I always get a kick out of this. These are ugly, twisted, gnarly bulbs. Who would think that a gnarly bulb would sprout into a beautiful flower? And yet this is what happens when Jesus returns for his church. You and I are ugly, gnarly bulbs. 
but will suddenly sprout into gorgeous flowers. We're the caterpillars that will turn into butterflies. On that day, we'll shed our cocoons and we'll sprout wings. I love the tombstone inscribed, budded on earth to bloom in heaven. That's our testimony. That's the destiny of all believers in Jesus. Budded on earth to bloom in heaven. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Bodies designed for time and space aren't capable of occupying eternity. We'll need bodies with heavenly capacities. Our mortal bodies must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. See, our Lord Jesus won't be satisfied until he has reversed every trace of sin and its painful consequences, especially that of death. Jesus will one day abolish death once and for all. And Paul is so sure of it that he begins to taunt death. He begins to rag on death. Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, death is the only pest that stings before it bites. The worst aspect of death is not that it stops life, but that it spoils life ahead of time. See, death affects us long before we die. It casts a cloud over the good times, knowing that one day they'll end. The wealthy man doesn't feel as rich, knowing that he can't take it with him. Fame loses its luster, knowing that it won't last. There are no marquees in a graveyard, just tombstones. Death is a robber. It steals the joys of life. Death terminates relationships. It busts up homes and hearts. It creates missed opportunities. It causes regrets that are never resolved. Death certainly stings. Once there was a little boy who was allergic to bee stings. He and his dad, they were driving in the car when he saw a bee swarming over the dashboard. Well, the little guy panicked. He screamed for his father who was driving to do something. Well, the dad reached up and he caught the bee in his fist. He waited for a minute. Then he turned it loose. He opened his fist and the bee flew back out. Again, the boy came unglued. What was his dad trying to do? That's when the father opened up his hand and he showed the son the stinger stuck in his palm. The dad loved his son and had allowed the bee to sting him so that it wouldn't be able to sting his son. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He has taken the sting of death. You will see the stinger in his hands, in his feet, in his side, in his brow. Jesus was separated from his father so that we could live forever with God. He paid sin's penalty so that we could be forgiven. Once and for all, Jesus has defeated death. And today, though death is still present, like the bee in the car, nevertheless, Jesus has made sure that it can no longer take anything of real and lasting value from the child of God. Jesus has taken the sting out of death. And now Paul taunts death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? He throws Hades into the mix. The bars of Hades have been broken. Jesus has sprung us. We're free. Paul sums it up. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Since Jesus rose from the dead, we will too. There is life after the grave. One day we'll stand before our Creator. And this means that our labor for the Lord now is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. What you're doing for God, what you do for Him every day does count. What you do today matters in eternity. This is why Paul tells us, be steadfast. That is, never give up. Be immovable. That means never give in. Always abounding. That means never give out. Never give up, never give in, never give out in the work of the Lord. Never. What you do for Jesus, friends, truly does matter. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, chapter 16. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, Paul's taking an offering. He was taking an offering from the Gentile churches for the first church in Jerusalem. See, the Christians in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times. Judea had suffered from a famine that had left many folks hungry. And Paul felt that the Gentile Christians owed their Jewish brothers a debt of gratitude. In a sense, the Gentile spiritual heritage had begun in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem was responsible for them coming into God's kingdom. So he's taking up an offering among the Gentiles to give to the Jews. He continues, he says, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, he mentions the first day of the week because that's when the Christians met. They met then and now on the first day of the week. We meet on Sundays. Why? That's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And when the church gathers... He says, let each one of you lay aside, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Here's a part of worship that is often overlooked. But understand, it's just as important as our praying, as our singing, as our studying. It's every bit as important. Perhaps it's more revealing than all the praying and singing and studying combined. It's more revealing as to where our heart lies. We also worship God with the giving of our money. And Paul wanted the church in Corinth to pony up and take care of their part in this collection before he visited them. He says, spare me the awkwardness. I don't want to have to deal with this personally when I get there. I want you to be faithful and I want you to give of your offerings to the church before I arrive. He says, and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. And this was very wise. Paul wanted a representative of the people who gave the money to escort it to Jerusalem. Paul was careful to be very accountable, very above board with the finances. He says, but if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Verse 5, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you 
that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So he's going to Macedonia. He'll pass through Corinth, but he doesn't want to see them then. He's going to see them after Macedonia when he comes back around. And of course, all of this is contingent if the Lord permits. Or as it's pronounced in Latin, Deo Valente. Deo Valente, God willing. You know, Paul says, I'm going to do all this God willing. Paul was the preeminent leader of the church, but understand he never stopped being a follower of Jesus. I'll do this, I'll do that, if the Lord wills. His decisions decisions were contingent, Deo Valente, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, that is late spring, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Notice the adversaries didn't stop Paul from pursuing the opportunities. If Christians were less intimidated by our adversaries, I think we'd find a lot more opportunities to speak for Jesus. Verse 10, now if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do, therefore let no one despise him. But send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Timothy was one of Paul's most trusted allies. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Now, according to Acts chapter 18, Apollos was the Bible teacher who Aquila and Priscilla had tutored on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, some teachers stop being teachable after they start teaching. But to Apollos' credit, he was not one of them. He was a humble man. Here, Apollos, at the time, he, he allowed himself to be tutored by Aquila and Priscilla here, He disagrees with Paul. Now, why we're not told, but Paul doesn't condemn him for it. Apparently, he chalked it up to just a difference of opinion, and it happens at times. I think we should note that even serious and sincere Christians disagree at times. Uh, We can agree to disagree agreeably. That's what we should do, as they did. And then Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 13, watch Stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. What a challenge for us. Let me read that again. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that is, the first fruits of Achaia, Now, Stephanus' family was Paul's first converts in Corinth. They were the first fruit of the region, Achaia. First ones to get saved when he originally came there. He says, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Apparently, Stephanus was not only the first believer in Corinth, but he became the pastor His family founded the church. They helped support the church. They ministered to the saints. Now recall earlier in Paul's letter, he rebuked the Corinthians for rallying around celebrity pastors. 
You remember the, the folks were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Well, here he overlooks the superstar pastors and he says, support your local leadership. Hey, he says, hey, be faithful to the guy who labors in the trenches. Find that faithful pastor among you, who lives among you, who you know. Not the slick guy with the novel approach who sweeps into town to impress everybody before they get to know him. Now, you find Stephanus, support him. He's the guy who labors among you. He's the guy who was there when the church was small, when things got started. He's the one you, you need to pray for and devote yourself to him. Verse 17, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit in yours, therefore acknowledge such men. This was the trio who came to Paul with Corinthian support. Perhaps they brought him an offering from Corinth. Maybe they brought him some food or clothes. Uh, they helped him. It's interesting, they also were the ones who reported to Paul the problems that were occurring in Corinth. Remember, this letter is a response to the problems. And Paul knows that they could be branded as tattletales. And so here he urges everyone to show these three guys a lot of respect when they return. He says, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Notice this. The dynamic duo are at it again. Aquila and Priscilla, everywhere you find them in the scripture, there is a church meeting in their house. Apparently, they opened their hearts and their home to the Lord. Prior to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla lived in Corinth. And it was there Paul had met this dedicated couple. Now they're sending their greetings to their former friends from where they used to live. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And the point here is not whether you greet each other with a kiss or a handshake or a hug or a high five for that matter. But whatever greeting you use, it should be warm and sincere. And most of all, it should be holy. He says, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. He writes out his name. Paul's custom was to dictate his correspondence to a stenographer. And then at the end of his letter, he would add his signature to authenticate the document. And here he writes his signature, Paul. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Literally, anathema. It means excommunicated, cut off from the family. In other words, if you're not allied to God's son, then you're not part of his family. Did I say that clear enough? That's what Paul says. And then he adds an Aramaic phrase. In English, it's, O Lord, come. But in Greek, it's Maranatha. Maranatha, that's where we get the word. The Lord come. Paul is so excited. Lord, come quickly. He's been talking about our new bodies and all. Why not? Lord, come quickly. Paul closes his letter to the Corinthians in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.